Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. We're going to be talking about building and scaling. He's done it multiple times and uh, I think that we're going to find the um, the time with him, you know, very inspiring, you know. Uh, so without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Daniel Theobald. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Alejandro. So originally born in Santa Clara, California. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? You know, it was fascinating um, that uh, at the time I totally took it for granted. I did not realize how unique of an experience I was having growing up in what eventually became Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I got to attend an elementary school that had a computer lab. And, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. I realize it now. That was one of the first uh, elementary schools with a computer lab in the entire world. Um, I got to uh, go uh, represent the state of California at Lawrence Livermore National Lab doing AI back in the 80s. I got to spend some time with Edward Teller, who was, um, you know, a, a uh, um, controversial figner, figure who many consider the father of the hydrogen bomb. Um, and uh, that was a very formative experience for me to just help me understand the importance of um, the work we do as engineers and the impact it can have on society. Um, went to MIT after that, and, um, you know, that was, uh, that was a very interesting experience. How was the experience of MIT? 
you know, because I heard also there that you were awarded with the Henry Ford the second, uh, you know, award there, and uh, you were recognized as the top engineer. So, uh, what, what, what was that experience like? <laughs> yeah, well, honestly, it didn't start out that way. Um, uh, I, like many people, was a little bit um, shocked when, when I arrived on campus. As a matter of fact, kind of a funny story. I got to campus early because I needed to get a job. Um, I couldn't afford tuition unless I got a job. So I figured if I got there early, um, you know, that would give me a leg up. And um, I got there and then I got the first newspaper, the tech, um, the school newspaper, and huge half-page headline. It said, freshmen, welcome to hell. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's it's a very intense, uh, it's an, an intense environment, but um, really fascinating. Um, uh, you know, I tell people that, uh, you know, MIT is a great school, but it's really a great school because of the students, because of the people you meet and you run into. Lectures, they can be okay. Um, you know, maybe you'll learn some things from the from the professors, um, that research is really interesting. But, you know, the most valuable thing is just the the talent uh, uh, and caliber of people that you run into there is just great. In, in your case, actually, like right after that, you know, you got your master's too, and, and then you moved to Washington and you decided to start your first company. So how was, I mean, typically, you know, you would see people going into working for other companies and doing the whole corporate thing, but you went right, right into it, you know, about 99 in, in the late 90s. So what made you, you know, say, hey, let's go. I'm just going to do it, go at it my, on my own. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I actually tell people that um, I recommend people spend some time working for other companies first in general. Um, for a number of reasons. But my experience was I actually started, I got a job at a company called W3 Health. W3 Health no longer exists. Um, and um, it was a small company, a startup. And it turned out that um, I, I was kind of winning the work. I was kind of doing the work. And at one point I'm like, you know, why, why am I working so hard and creating success for somebody else? Why not do it for myself um, since I'm sort of doing all these pieces anyway? So I um, uh, decided to strike out on my own, and I started out as just an independent contractor um, because I, I, I wanted to go down a path of bootstrapping uh, the business. I knew I needed to make some money first, right? I, I didn't want to have to go straight to investors from day one for a number of reasons we'll probably talk about later, but um, I knew I needed some money, so I started consulting. And the great thing about consulting is the barrier to entry is very low, right? You have a computer, you've got a brain, you've got a good education. You can go help people get some, get some work done. So um, I had a lot of success, started growing a team. And, um, you know, that's eventually what, what turned into Vecna Technologies, um, a very successful company. So Vecna Technologies, you know, you ended up splitting that into two. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the healthcare side, and then also on the robotics side, Vecna Robotics. So uh, tell us about Vecna Robotics. You know, yeah. what ended up uh, becoming Vecna Robotics? Well, Vecna Robotics is the world leader in autonomous forklifts. Um, so self-driving forklifts that uh, can operate in a warehouse or a uh, factory and, you know, move pallets from point A to point B. Most people don't realize it, but 
the economy basically runs on pallets. Um, you know, you look around the room, everything you see was probably spent part of its supply chain life on pallets. And so it's just a massive sort of, you know, behind the scenes need the industry has. Um, forklifts are dangerous. A lot of people are injured and die every year in forklift accidents. Um, and, uh, um, you know, it's a perfect opportunity for automation. So we leaned, leaned in on that. You know, at Vecna Technologies, we had developed a lot of robotic technology and we're at the point where we felt like, you know, we can actually use this research we've done to solve real problems. And so um, Vecna Robotics uh, really broke ground in a number of areas. Uh, we know we we're very um, forward thinking in how we approach the problem. You know, one of the big contributions we made is that at the time, most robotics were still very academic. Um, you know, and anyone can get a robot working in a laboratory environment and show that it can do something once or twice. It's a completely different ball game to actually scale, to actually have robots that can operate reliably 24-7 in the real world, provide value, and do it for a good ROI, right? That cost-benefit thing. And so um, one of the things to realize is robots are never going to be perfect, Right. They're always going to have problems because it's hard. They're operating in the real world and humans, human workers have problems all the time. You run into situations you don't know how to handle. And so one of the things that we did that actually I took a lot of slack for it at the beginning was we created this model where if a robot gets to a point where it doesn't know what to do, it can't solve a problem on its own. It reaches out basically phones home to a human operator who can then basically help the robot. And um, people said, oh, that's cheating. If your robot was really smart enough, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't need it to be able to you know, get help from a human, all this stuff, um, which was absolutely wrong. And everybody's realized it now. Um, and so that's what actually made robots possible to start scaling. And, and we see this adoption of robots going um, ever increasing rate. Um, you know, they're going to permeate every every part of the physical economy. But, you know, not really, not really going to happen if you can't create the kind of reliability you need to actually provide return on investment for the customers. So, you know, I guess that's my one first strong piece of advice is cheat. You know, if, if it's cheating to have the robot get help from a human um, and uh, provide better service for your customers, cheat. Do what makes sense for the customer. Don't don't have so much ego and pride about you know doing something right that uh, you don't uh, you don't get get the problem solved in in a way that's going to actually be economically viable. So then, what ended up being the business model of uh, Vecna Robotics? How were you guys making money there? Yeah, so um, we're actually one of the early um, uh, um, companies in what's called robotics as a service, RAS. You've probably heard of software as a service. Um, you know, software as a service is a, is a darling of investors. They love software as a service um, because of the, you know, the ability to scale. Um, and in a sense, we're taking that model. It's not exactly the same thing because there is hardware involved. Um, but if you think about it, there's also hardware involved with SaaS, right? You need servers to run it on and that type of thing. Um, but the idea is that people are now buying essentially robot work versus robots 
And so they'll pay a subscription fee, basically, to um, use the autonomous forklifts in their warehouse, um, you know, in a three or a five year deal. And um, and uh, one of the really nice things about it is that there's immediate payback for them Um, in this industry. A lot of times people are very used to buying equipment, right? So it's what you would call a capital expenditure. Bunch of money up front, they buy a new forklift or they buy a new conveyor belt or they buy a new whatever, and they spend all that money and then they depreciate it over time. Um, this new model is really powerful for these customers because they can now use their operating budget versus capital budget to buy the capability of the robotics to help them, um, you know, supercharge the productivity of their workers. And for the company, you guys have raised uh, close to 130 million. So how was how has it been the uh, the journey of raising money for a company like this? You know, it's an interesting question. I'd say and I, I have mixed feelings about it. You know, I I tell people, and I told people for years before that that. Uh, um, Raising, um, you know, raising money, taking money from a VC is kind of like pressing the self-destruct button on your spaceship. Uh, you have one hour after you've uh, after you press that button to find the alien, kill the alien, and disable the self-destruct, or your company's kind of getting blown to pieces. And that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but um, you know, the the interesting thing is that uh, um, the statistics are pretty clear and VC-funded companies, that most of them don't survive. And it's not necessarily because it wasn't a good company. A lot of times it's because the timing wasn't right or, you know, more funds weren't available or, um, you know, any anything like that. So that's part of the reason why I avoided raising money for so long with Vecna Technologies, um, because I wanted to be at a point where before I raised money, I had a level of confidence that I'd be able to provide the kind of returns to the investors that I would want. So when it came time to raise money, um, we actually um, did very well because we were able to go and say, hey, look, we've built this technology. It's, um, uh, you know, it's achieved a, a level of product market fit uh, that we think is appropriate. Um, we've already got uh, these customers. They're excited to buy the product. Um, you know, it was, it was very different than sort of pitching an idea and starting from scratch. Um, but uh, ultimately, we were able to, um, you know, bring in some some uh, um, real money and grow the team. And, uh, you know, the, the rest is kind of history. So then in this case, for example, with Vecna Robotics, uh, now you're the chairman. So tell us about that moment where you step up as the chairman and, and you decide to bring, you know, professional uh, CEO to, uh, to, to operate the business. Yeah, you know, it's um, something where I realized uh, I've got a lot of other things going on. You know, we talked about uh, um, a little bit, but, uh, you know, I founded, co-founded an organization called Mass Robotics, for example, that's having a massive impact on the industry as a whole. Um, uh, I'm very interested in agrobotics and being a CEO is a, you know, it's like two full-time jobs. Um, and it just, it's sort of all consuming. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that was something that I could continue doing, but I felt like I had, uh, not just the opportunity, but the responsibility to kind of step back and, and 
step up to a higher level, not just in Vecna, but in the industry as a whole, and contribute in lots of other ways. Um, and so, um, you know, worked with the board, we brought in a CEO um, and uh, been able to spend much more of my time, um, you know, providing high level direction to the company, but uh, focused on really helping the industry as a whole move forward. And my new company, Mechable, actually is um, in some, some sense a response to some of the um, holes I saw in the industry, um, some of the needs I saw in the industry. Um, automation is hard. Um, uh, there, there are a lot of challenges, particularly new technology like robotics. And what I found was many, many large customers, you know, Fortune 50 customers know they need to automate, right? The reality is they have to mechanize or, or die. They become irrelevant if they don't mechanize. But most of them just don't know how to do that. Um, they don't have the in-house expertise. They haven't been down that path. And so, you know, really the whole idea at Mechable is help them along that journey. You know, it's kind of like climbing Mount Everest. And most people don't climb Mount Everest without an experienced guide, you know, without a Sherpa to help help them along the way who have been there before and done done these things again and again. Know the terrain, know the tools, know how to do it safely. You know, it's like a big risk mitigator. And that's kind of what... Mechable does for companies that need to automate is um, we're not going to make those mistakes that people who haven't done it before would. And it's not that they're not smart. It's just they haven't done it before. And it's complicated stuff. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of holes that you can step in. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there, right? There's a lot of companies saying that they can do things or that their technology is at a place where it's just not yet. And so Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Absolutely. Now, now in your case, you were alluding to it earlier. You've been also involved with the non-for-profit side of things. Mm -hmm. You know, one is mass robotics. The other one is twisted fields. 
So tell us about mass robotics and then also twisted fields. Why are they so dear to your heart and why mm-hmm. are they going to make such a difference? Well, you know, one of the things that was really unique about Vecna Technologies originally was that I paid my employees to spend 10% of every work week doing community service. And, you know, this was something like Harvard business professors, Clayton Christensen, um, you know, the, the famed disruptive technology guru, um, a friend of mine, he said, you know, you can't, you can't do that. You're going to, you know, give away all your profits um, by paying your employees to spend 10% of the work week doing, doing community service. And that's what makes sense on a spreadsheet. That's what it looks like. But actually, when it plays out, um, there's actually a really, really powerful return there just in terms of the esprit de corps and all that. So through that experience of giving back and providing this community service benefit to my employees, I realized that um, uh, um, the industry really needed some help sort of breaking out of its infancy and that there was um, a gap that needed to be filled in terms of helping companies, helping these new robotics companies um, uh, grow, survive and grow. And so I actually used my community service time along with some of my colleagues at Vecna Technologies to, um, and we brought in others from the community to co-found Mass Robotics. And Mass Robotics has just been a phenomenal success helping to um, really encourage the mass adoption, hence the name, of robotics worldwide. Um, There are three main missions there. One is to provide resources to new entrepreneurs who are trying to start up companies in the AI um, connected devices, robotic space. Um, and so there's co-working spaces, there's experts, there's access to uh, machine shops and technologies. Uh, the second is to really encourage STEM education. So getting, um, we're putting programs in place for uh, middle schoolers, high schoolers to have access to um, a really exciting projects in robotics that inspires them. And some of the results of that have just been absolutely amazing. And then the third is to um, help solve um, uh, other problems that are holding the industry back. Hence why we've started um, creating industry standards like the Mass Robotics Interoperability Standard, which is basically about how robots from different companies can share the same space and 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 coexist and and work together um so it uh it's really about just trying to solve um problems that the industry was facing that no individual you know existing for-profit organization could could really do and the government wasn't doing it um and so it, it really felt an important need and why agriculture, you know, with Twisted Fields? Yeah, so Twisted Fields is just kind of, a, um, I guess, a passion project in a sense. Um, I uh, at, During my robotics, early robotics research in Vecna Technologies, I did a lot of ag research, worked on some USDA grants and projects. And I was out in California visiting some of my collaborators at UC Davis and um and uh, decided to look at properties um, because uh, wanted to, um, you know, have a research facility for agriculture that um, um, allowed me to test 
this technology in, in a real world environment. And I found this just absolutely phenomenal, beautiful property called Rancho San Gregorio, um, little hidden away place um, on the coast, um, very close to um, Sand Hill Road, Palo Alto area. Um, but basically, if you take Sand Hill Road and you drive to the beach, um, my ranch is is right there. But the whole reason I got it was to em- enable um, uh, ag to start to take advantage of a lot of the robotics technology that we'd created in the warehousing and, and manufacturing industries, um, because ag is in desperate need of, um, of uh, help. Uh, you know, there's big, big, big problems in our food systems. Um, labor is a huge one. Um, you know, most people don't want to acknowledge that almost all of our food is grown by people who technically should not be here. Um, you know, sometimes people call them illegal. Sometimes people call them undocumented. But, um, uh, you know, wherever you stand in, in, in the um, in the political issues, at the end of the day, everybody has to acknowledge there's a problem here. And one of the solutions to that problem is making farmers more productive, making workers more productive, um, solving some of these labor issues. And so what we've done is we've built an, built an open source robotics platform that anybody worldwide can download the plans for, can build both the software and the hardware as open source. And the idea is to kind of make it a you know, sort of iPhone, if you will, of agriculture, where someone can come along and build their own app on this robot to solve a problem that, you know, they are having um, uh, that's unique to them. One of the challenges in agriculture is every farm is different. Um, And, uh, you know, there's some commonality, but, um, uh, you know, our thought was to really empower the farmers and other companies to solve local problems uh, with technology without having to start from scratch. So then, so then in this case, you know, I guess going back to Mechable, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Mechable is fully realized, you know, your current company that you are uh, pushing, you know, on the for-profit side on things, you know, and you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, so... Um, Mechable, I would say, is really about um, uh, risk reduction and adoption of automation. So right now in the world, most automation projects are unsuccessful. Um, It's, uh, you know, sort of one of those um, things that uh, is a real problem. People will say, oh, we need robots. Let's go buy some robots. They do a Google Google search. They find a company that sells robots. They look at a few, and you know, and it all looks great. And they, you know, bring in this technology. And more than half of the time, again, depending whose numbers you believe, you know, it's up to eighty percent of the time the projects fail. Um, depending how you define fail, sometimes it's you know more fifty percent. But everybody, I think, uh, tends to agree that fifty percent of the time. Um, these automation projects end up failing. Um, so in, in the future world, this won't be the case. Um, we are going to help our customers understand how to automate, um, how to make those um, uh, buying decisions in a way that um, uh, produces the kind of ROI, the kind of return on investment that they're looking for. 
um, because nobody's career is enhanced by a failed project. And, um, uh, you know, that sets everybody back. Um, and uh, technology, automation, mechanization, these are inevitable things now. If you don't mechanize, you're going to become irrelevant. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's probably nothing more important than figuring out how to modernize your, your business operations. Um, but again, people can't do it without help because, um, you know, it's, it's all new. Um, they haven't, they haven't developed those skills yet. So now you've been, you know, for, for quite a while, you know, pushing your own ventures, you know, whether on the for-profit side or on the non-for-profit side. So I guess if I was to give you the opportunity of going back in time, you know, going back in time to that moment where you were still at MIT, you know, perhaps, you know, like, you know, uh, long, some, like 20 years, you know, ago, and I give you the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self, with that younger Daniel, and you have the opportunity of giving that younger Daniel one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, you know, I would say probably the number one piece of advice is follow your gut. There were numerous times when I let perhaps less inspired people talk me out of things because it wasn't the right way to do something. And um, in retrospect, had I gone for it in a number of cases, um, uh, you know, it would have been um, really amazing. So that's a big one. Follow your gut. You got to do something that you're passionate about. I spent, honestly, I spent way too long working on healthcare technology and healthcare is great. Um, it's important. Um, and, you know, I was able to, to um, make some passion for it, but ultimately it wasn't what I was passionate about. It was a way to make some money. And so you got to do what you're passionate about, because if you're not passionate about it, if you're not truly excited about the thing, not just that the thing is going to make you money, if you're not truly excited about the thing, then your brain isn't fully engaged in it. Right. You want your subconscious brain working on this problem when you're asleep, when you're in the shower, when, you know, you're on vacation. Um, and this is how you then have the brilliant ideas that break new ground, that change the world. It all comes from interest. It all comes from passion. So you got to do things that you're passionate about. Um, the one other thing that I struggled with a lot early on that I've found is very common as I talk to other founders and new people starting businesses is um, you really you really need to be careful who you choose to be on your team. And um, perhaps more importantly is when somebody's not working out, you let them go fast, right? You help them to be productive. You help them to be successful at another business. There are way too many times when I spent a lot of emotional energy, um, a lot of my team's time sort of dealing with um, dealing with the non-productive or, or, or negative member of the team that really dragged the business down. Um, so, you know, I eventually developed this no assholes rule. I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. But, you know, the no assholes rule became very, very important to me. If, if one of, uh, one of um, my employees, one of, the, one of my coworkers was making life unpleasant for their coworkers, I didn't care how smart they thought they were, how critical they were to the project. They had to go because 
the type of things we were able to accomplish because we had such such great um esprit de corps you know our our team they were just there for each other and worked hard and and when somebody came in who was like negative and complaining and trying to create problems it just ruins productivity um so i'd say that it's like a 10x right if you have if you can get rid of that negativity if there's people who are pulling the rest of the team down um you get rid of them you can get a 10x improvement and i should probably put that in the positive of course saying when you have a team that's truly working together and trusts each other the things that you can get done um just eclipse um uh you know what they are if you're if you're struggling with those type of problems i love it i love it you know at the end of the day you know you've said it you know it's all about people you know too and and how you invest in people you know you were talking about that too you know the difference that you make in others and uh, you know certainly you know like very very profound you know everything that you've shared in that regard today with all of us daniel so i guess for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi what is the best way for them to do so yeah uh, you can reach out to me on linkedin um or uh, you know happy to have people even send me an email uh theo t h e o at mekabel.com, M-E-K-A-B-L-E.com. Uh, that works well as well. You know, and I would encourage people to reach out um, and uh, ask for help. I'm happy to help people, and I ask people for help all the time. I feel like a lot of times in business, we have sort of this competitive mentality. Um, and, uh, you know, in this new industry of robotics, at least, the growth opportunity it, it's it's billions of times what it is right now um every, it's going to affect everything and there's more than enough for all of us and we're going to be we're going to each individually be much more successful if we reach out if we help each other if we collaborate there's an important concept i call pre-competitive collaboration it makes all the difference in the world so reach out ask people for help i can't tell you how many times i talk to young entrepreneurs who um haven't bothered to like call somebody who knows so much about their particular area because they feel like they're a competitor or something um talk to people we've got this amazing thing called the internet you can like email people you can text people like it's so easy to do so i think entrepreneurs should really take advantage of that i love that Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.